on a thousand planets and spreading out. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. To the bat poles. May the force be with you. Who is that mask man? Avengers, assemble. Good afternoon and welcome to the Fantastic Forum. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. Before we get to today's discussion, here is some genre-related news. Last week marked the 40th anniversary of the domestic opening of The Empire Strikes Back. The sequel to Star Wars debuted in theaters on May 21, 1980. The film cemented the series' status as a pop culture centerpiece. A sequel to Jim Henson's Labyrinth seems to be moving forward. Scott Derrickson has been reported to be connected with the project, along with writer Maggie Levine. Lisa and Brian Henson of the Jim Henson Company are producing the movie. Labyrinth starred David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly and was a box office flop when it debuted in 1986. However, it became a cult sensation and remained in the public consciousness via other media including comic books and video games. Police in Japan have made an arrest in the Kyoto Animation arson attack of last July. Shinji Aboa had been hospitalized from burn injuries suffered in the attack and only recently has been determined as sufficiently recovered to face scrutiny. Aboa had been found near the scene and apparently admitted to the crime. He accused the studio of having stolen his ideas. He's been taken to a Kyoto police station for interrogation. And some sad news this week as actor Richard Hurd passed away on May 26th. Heard was known to audiences of the genre for his work on such projects as Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, V, V The Final Battle, T.J. Hooker, Sequest DSV, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He was 87. And joining me today on this special coronavirus edition of Fantastic Forum, because of course we are following social distancing, we are sheltering in place, we are all very safe individuals because that's what you have to do in these trying times. But joining me, uh, I have, of course, a graphic artist and artist advocate, Roberto Ortiz, uh, also the creator of the Ants webcomic, the Ignorant Bliss podcaster, Cliff Award-nominated artist, Julian Lytle. Hello. And a newcomer to the show art critic and collector, and also uh, the uh, author of the Illustration Art Blog. He is David Apatow. David, welcome to the panel. Thank you. All right. So before we get to the meat and potatoes of today's show, I did want to make mention of something because of since we are doing this special coronavirus edition-y thing, uh, we record earlier in the week. So ordinarily, what you hear on Saturday afternoons is a live broadcast. Well, uh, the studio is locked down tight. They won't let me in. I thought I was special, but evidently not that special. So uh, there was an instant, well, news that occurred last week that I didn't get a chance to speak on. And it was fairly big genre-related news, but apparently 
Warner Brothers has decided to release the, uh, I'm going to call it the mythical Snyder Cut of the 2017 film Justice League. And I, I, I don't even know what to say about this. You know, my, my son and I got in a very serious argument because uh, he was saying that this was a real thing. And uh, in fact, Julie, and you may remember, we, we did a whole show on this where I was saying it wasn't a thing. The movie was unfinished. And in reality, what is happening, because the so-called uh, mythical Snyder Cut is being released on a streaming service, a paid streaming service, and it, they're going to have to finish the film. Apparently, Warner Brothers is providing certain resources to Zack Snyder for him to be able to finish that may even include some sort of reshoots. So, um, it, as it turns out, son, I was right. There is no existing <laughs> cut to be released. And he, he thought I was being dismissive of him, but I wasn't really... I don't think he understood what I was saying. But I'm just curious, uh, and Roberto, I know you've got thoughts. Uh, we're going to let you lead on this. Um, what what are your thoughts about the so-called mythical Snyder Cut release? <laughs> For starters, the whole thing with the mythical Snyder Cut was pure BS. If you understand basically how the post-production work is done in movies, it doesn't work that way, that basically they will have enough finished shots to be able to basically him to have a cut. What he had is basically some previous stuff, some uh, green screen stuff that he was able to do into a cut. Fair enough. What concerns me is that how is this going to affect other movies like uh, the New Gods movie? Because now in the Snyder Cut, they're going to be using Darkseid and a whole bunch of the characters from the New Gods. So what happens now to the New Gods movie that is basically on the pipeline now? Are they basically going to say, screw you, Aina, we're going to basically go with Snyder? And Snyder, the problem I have with him is basically is that he's a great visual artist, but he's not a storyteller. I'm sorry, he's not. And I, I, I hate with a passion the tone that he set up with the DC Universe, and I hate the fact that the, the fans, the fanboys, as I like to call them, want this one. And I know why they want this one, because... There's nothing in the can. The, the studios basically are desperate to produce content for all the streaming services. And since we're not filming, they need something. And they say, okay, well, I've been hearing this thing about the Snyder's Code. Let me see it. And they realize they have nothing. So that's why they decide to go with doing it into a miniseries because they have enough material to do like four hours of content. I, I'm, I'm truly not happy. Because now they're talking about doing the same with Suicide Squad and God knows what else. Uh, and it's like, mm. enough, people. Well, this is different from a director's cut. I mean, you know, we've seen it's, director's yeah. cuts before. I mean, this is basically uh, a, a whole new take at it. Now, I, I have heard that the rough cut of this film, you know, was something he had screened for Warner Brothers execs and that it was about four hours long. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. And in, and in fact, you can actually see some of this material on YouTube. I took a look, and there was a lot of stuff. As you mentioned, Darkseid is actually in the film. Personally, I mean, sight unseen, I'm inclined to believe that the best version of this is the theatrical release version. And hey, Zack Snyder still got director credit on the theatrical release. The vast majority of what viewers saw was 
Zack Snyder. Um, you know, I just happen to think the lighter tone was going to be more suitable to what this material was. You have to understand what goes with what character. The darkness, yeah, that was Batman. That that worked okay. You know, Chris Nolan, yeah, fine. You know, in terms of what he did and what he put together, had a real clear conception of what that was. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers being old Hollywood, they said, oh, this guy has put something together that has been commercially successful. Therefore, we want him to direct this effort going forward. And that's not necessarily the best thing because, you know, all of a sudden you have Chris Nolan go out with Zack Snyder and he's like, yeah, let's do Superman. Okay, but let's do darker, grittier Superman, which doesn't work for Superman, you know? So, anyway. Also, Warner Brothers as a studio has a genetic problem that once that dumb idea enters into their head, holy cow, they won't let it go. It's <laughs> like, let's do the dead of Superman. Let's do the Death of, Let's do of Superman. And for the longest time, they wanted to do the Death of Superman since the mid-90s. They were obsessed with doing that. And what they ended up doing? They ended up doing the Death of Superman with Superman Returns. Uh, then they had the dumb idea of Batman versus Superman. That idea has been on, on the market for about 10 years. And they didn't want to let it go. And it was a dumb idea. It's not supposed to be about the two character fighting. They didn't let it go. Next dumb idea, there's neither cut. It's it, it's like ah. Oh, it doesn't sound too dumb when you see all those comic books that sell every month. Frank they, Miller made a whole sell. career out of this. Yeah, a long time ago is, he did. A long yeah, time. Yeah. Look, that, it is it is such a tiresome cliche to turn heroes into anti-heroes. People have been looking for new creative ways to do it for sixty years now, and it was yeah. charming and interesting when when Spider-Man first started having problems with his love life and getting parking tickets. <laughs> but uh, after after the dark night, it got more and more sour. And at this point, I think the last thing the world needs is another Snyder uh, uh, effort you. to do this. Well, the last thing the world needs and the last thing the world wants. I think what viewers want is something is a more optimistic portrayal of these heroes. You, you didn't have the same strife that you had in the Justice League that you found in the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. I mean, they were all friends. They were larger than life. And and they were the ideal that people were striving to reach. You know, you could put really? the DC heroes up on a pedestal uh, as opposed to the Marvel heroes. What 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 was it you wanted to say, Okay, okay here's the thing. Remember that I said that Mar Warner Brothers basically obsesses over dumb ideas? You know what's the next dumb idea that is coming down the pipe? <laughs> how do you uh -oh. feel? How do you feel about the Injustice Superman? Oh from wait, the, from that from video, video game? game? Yep. Oh, you're kidding! Somebody wants to I'm do not that? Kidding? No, that's actually part of the storyline of the Snyder Cut. I read the storyline. It ends oh. with this Injustice Superman. Oh, you know, um, I remember in. In Batman versus Superman, they yeah. alluded to that, you know, because and in fact yes, that was part do. of Batman's nightmare, you know. That's well, the they, thing. Yeah, they it's they alluded like they, to it. They're steamrolling in that direction, and it's like you want to stop them because every single thing they keep making in terms of making a radical uh, or making a darker, it's the one who takes it in the chain is Superman as a character. It's like stop this. Superman is not about this. <laughs> 
They, they, they stop, don't like Superman. I, uh, there are a lot no of people kidding, who feel like they feel like he's a Boy Scout. He's too true blue, you know, I mean, and they don't like him because of that. But again, he's he's the man of tomorrow. He is that ideal that people uh, do well to which people strive. Anyway, before we beat this thing, I mean, we've already kind of beat this dead horse, probably went a little longer than I had wanted to. But I will remind listeners that this is Fantastic Forum on WERA 96.7 FM Radio Arlington. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. I'm joined today by Roberto Ortiz, Julian Lytle, and David Apatoff. And we are talking, well, we were talking about the release of the mythical Snyder Cut uh, of Justice League, the 2017 film from Warner Brothers. And apparently this thing is going to be out. It may be four hours long. You will be able to pay and see it on a streaming service coming in the very near future. But what I had actually wanted to talk about today uh, is comic books. And as, as all of you know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a huge comic book fan. Those values that I have that I did not get from my parents or from an episode of Star Trek, I got from a comic book. <laughs> so it was initially the art that drew me in to these comic books. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to talk about comic book art. I wanted to talk about some of the artists, these dedicated scribes that put pencil or used to put pencil to Bristol, because that's not how you do it anymore, uh, or who ink these books, uh, those that we have found inspirational, those that have brought us to the medium, and uh, those who we feel are influential and have been influential in the media. I'm going to mention uh, a guy who is one of my favorite artists uh, to this day and uh, still actually producing work, but he is one of the giants of the field, Neil Adams. And I'll tell you what, when I first saw Neil Adams' work, in fact, I think I'm pretty sure the first thing I saw of him was uh, an issue of the Avengers. I want to say it was Avengers 94, maybe. The story is called Behold the Mandroids. The art was like nothing I had ever seen. Adams has this sort of hyper-realistic kind of style, at least in contrast to the various artists who were working at the time. Nobody was doing anything that looked like this. And I was really excited about it as a comics fan, and for a long time... He was my, my very favorite comic book artist. So um, I'm wondering, hey, if any of you guys want to chime in on, on Adams, that's fine. Um, otherwise, we can jump to something else. Uh, David hasn't had much of a chance to talk uh, so far, uh, so we will lead with him. Sure. Um, Adams gave a talk at Comic-Con last year. We got up and stood for an hour and just rambled without notes. And when, when he rambles, he always says interesting things. He's got a big ego, but he's a super talented guy. I agree with you. He, he was no, terrific. He really, really? Yeah. And what he uh, and uh, people said, uh, isn't this a terrible time for the comics industry? Uh, all the money is going uh, to movies and the readership is down and sales are down. And Adam said, you're crazy. He said, this is the best time to be a comic artist. He said, there's a lot of junk out there, but he said, in any era, in any art form, 
95% of what is produced is crap. And your trick is to become the, the part of the 5%. He said, if you're in that 5 to 10%, the top of the, of the comics field, then you get royalties now that you didn't get before. You get uh, intellectual property rights. You get all kinds of opportunities to work in uh, adjacent media. And uh, you get more interesting work than you ever got before, back in those good old days when people were just paying you $50 a page to draw comic books. Uh, so he said, that's great. Uh, said, Don't get your vision diluted by the 90% of uh, bad work that's out there, the schlock work that's out there. He said, it's your job as a consumer of comics to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. Take a look around and, and don't, don't pass judgment on the industry by the unimaginative and the repetitive stuff that's coming out focus on the new stuff and the good stuff that's coming out which i thought was a pretty pretty shrewd assessment mm -hmm. no i'd have to agree with that you know the other thing that you reminded me of uh, as you were uh, talking about uh, neil adams is the fact that he's been such a pioneer i mean as i recall uh, he was the one who started this whole motion comic thing and uh, his studio was doing quite a bit of that uh, i'm not sure uh, what happened, whether it just wasn't as well received uh, as uh, the industry maybe thought it was. But, you know, that was certainly some cutting-edge kind of stuff. So, um, I mean, now, I, one, one question for you. When he gave his talk, was he wearing his signature blue shirt that he always seems <laughs> to be wearing? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think he. I think that's all he has in his wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, if no. Another thing to add about him. You know, oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing to add about him is basically he was a pioneer in terms of self-publishing. People forget about that. About him. Mm -hmm. in the eighties, he basically launched his own self-publishing line, and he advocates a lot for artists. He, he might have a huge ego. Well, he's spot on about the industry. Might. <laughs> Might. He definitely has a huge ego. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but David, you were going to talk about, um, you know, uh, well, you were going to start with uh, some artist that uh, you found inspiring or uh, otherwise noteworthy. Well, sure. I think uh, we get caught up in discussions about the latest releases, but I think you have to keep in mind that this whole multi-billion dollar multinational uh, film industry and gaming industry was really begun by individuals, guys, all guys at that time, who sat alone at their drawing board with moths flickering around the light in the middle of the night, cranking out these pages and inventing these characters for $50 and $60 a page. And I think they did, they made a lot of strong creative choices. You know, when Jack Kirby was drawing a line. It was there in black and white, and uh, it, he, there was no equivocation at that point. It was his creativity and uh, and uh, his imagination there at the drawing board, which was the starting point for all this stuff. So, the the mediums have become far more sophisticated. They're far more glib. You've got uh, uh, computer graphics and digitization and all kinds of uh, Dolby sound and things to. Uh, to kind of beef up the stories, but the the hard part, the creative part, I think, really began in that that kind of unholy relationship between the artist and the page in front of him at that time. Uh, and if you go back and look at the talent, 
the artists who uh, who formed the bullpen for EC Comics, uh, mm. which uh, was Frank Frazetta and Wally Wood and Al Williamson, uh, uh, that group that uh, and Alex Toth. Mm. Uh, that stayed together uh, and uh, worked on Creepy and Eerie, the Warren magazines afterwards in the 60s. And, uh, and Kirby, uh, uh, he was a, another formidable source, fountain of creativity. And uh, uh, I think uh, also the, the Mad Magazine people, uh, Mort Drucker and uh, again, uh, Wood, Kurtzman, Will Elder, uh, those guys, they were all underpaid and underappreciated. The work that they did uh, wasn't regarded as high art until it started minting money for big corporations. Hmm. Uh, and the corporations didn't appreciate them back then. Uh, they say that uh, Kirby invented the, the character Galactus when uh, big corporate moguls were hovering around Marvel, uh, which was teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. And they were ready to, to scavenge the bones of everything that he'd created. And he, he saw similarities between Galactus and the and the big corporations <laughs> pillaging and plundering uh, value, and he would go to the corporate uh, managers at Marvel and say, "Don't you understand this stuff that we've created? It's got great inherent value. It's got you know someday it'll be worth a lot, but uh, nobody can see that." And uh, so, the, the the bleached bones of uh, what he created at Marvel were really sold at a fire sale for nothing. But those guys. Uh, you know the, the the original source, the fountain, are people that I think were uh, neglected at the time, and I'm glad to see that uh, they're beginning to get their due. Steve Ditko, uh, wonderful, wonderful talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I especially of the, I mean, and you mentioned a lot of names, <laughs> so I mean, but yeah. particularly Alex Toth. Uh, I mean, I, I I love. I mean, I discovered his work really through uh, some of the character designs that he did for some popular 60s cartoons. I mean, he was one of those artists. Space Ghost. That, oh, exactly. Um, you know, uh -huh. Johnny Quest. I mean, there was, there was a bunch of stuff. I mean, that because he made the jump to animation and, you know, ended up uh, getting some notoriety doing that and benefits, too. You know, in fact, I, I, I remember hearing a story about when Jack Kirby started doing something similar because uh, he had done that for Thundar, the Barbarian. And uh, working for the animation studio, this was the first time that this guy had had any kind of health benefits, you know, working any artist job in his life, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it, when you talk about the the unholy relationship between the artist and the page, I mean, it, it was, I mean, yeah, that was part of it, but it was also the fact that they were producing work for hire, and there was nothing illegal about it, certainly. I mean, this was the industry standard at the time. But, you know, you had guys who, uh, uh, well, for a long time, didn't even get to put their names on the work that they were putting out. And, uh, and I think that's really a shame. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I get real excited now anytime there's a movie or a TV show and they reference, um, you know, the, the actual creators. All right. So, Roberto, I hear you trying to get in there. Um, we will actually hold that thought because I, I want to get to Julian in terms of, uh, you know, some character, well, some artists that he likes. We'll get to you right after that. Um, I guess for me, uh, one of the most impactful artists of my time is uh, Jim Lee. 
I kind of call him the uh, Michael Jordan of uh, superhero comics. And I think it, it's a, a apt description because in a lot of ways, the 90s, out of all the artists that popped up, he's probably like the most successful one, the most impactful one. Uh, the one that's still around and, and still, uh, you can still see him and he still holds weight. Uh, even as now he's been doing all these drawings for uh, charity for the comic book industry. And I think some people kind of took for granted because he became so ubiquitous. He had so many clones and copies and his version of the X-Men kind of became the standard version of the X-Men uh, that it almost got kind of cool in the 2000s. It was like, oh, Jim Lee is kind of corny. It's like, you go back and, and look at some of that X-Men stuff he was doing and that was some dynamic smooth slick artwork it totally changed things from i guess the 80s marvel style that was very still uh john busema inspired into something that had a tinge of the of um of the japanese influence of of character design and slickness of anime but still gave you that feeling of what american superhero comics was and I'm not gonna lie, I saw I, I was at Morrison Con in 2012, and I saw him draw like a drawing of the Joker in like two minutes, like fully drawn, realized, and just get up and go do a signing. And I was like, I ain't wow. never seen no comic book artist draw a full <laughs> portrait of a character with shading, cross hatching, like a fully finished piece in like two minutes, to get up and walk away. I was like, man, that's like when Michael pushed off on. Byron's, Byron Russell in the game six of the Utah. Like, man, that's amazing. Like, he's... And also, like, you gotta give it to a fact, man. Eight and a half million copies of one comic book. Mm. That is that is, that is, is a lot of comic books, y'all. That's a lot of comic that books. That was records. That's eight and a half times platinum, man. That's that's crazy. And we still see those versions of the X-Men to this day. He's not getting a check off of it. But I also like the fact that he was one of the main reasons when Image became Image because... If you can hear the stories from Tom McFarlane, it's like the get to become to make image was them getting Jim Lee, the getting the top guy. Cause at a certain point he was already a rebel. So Marvel and DC wasn't looking at him that much. And Rob Liefeld was kind of like the young upstart. And when they got the guy who just sold eight and a half million copies, it's like, nah, I'm done. We about to go do our own thing. That changed comic books forever. Mm. Yeah, well, there you go. Yes, that 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 is a good, a, a good get there. All right, hey, but that musical cue means that it's time for us to take a short break because, of course, Fantastic Forum comes to you via WERA ninety six point seven FM in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming via WERA FM. We are community radio, which means this is a place where you can get involved. Visit the website at WERA.FM to find out how and to find out how community radio can enrich your life. So what we're going to do, we're going to step aside for a moment while we acknowledge the invaluable contribution of our underwriters and sponsors. We're also going to take a couple of moments to promote some of the other fine WERA shows that are coming up later tonight. But stick around because Roberto, Julian, and David and I will be right back right after that. Don't go away.
And we're back here on Fantastic Forum on WERA, 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. We are Arlington. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. I'm joined by an all-star lineup of panelists, as always, uh, joined by Roberto Ortiz, Julian Lytle, and David Apatow. And we are talking about comics. Comics are the foundation for a lot of what is going on today in popular culture. Did you see that Avengers Infinity War thing? Well, let me tell you, it started out as a comic book. And one thing that actually kind of saddens me is that today, comic books largely exist, I dare say, as source material for some other kind of media, the television or the movies. But uh, before we took our break, Roberto Ortiz was trying to get a word in edgeways, and we're gonna let him get that word in. Roberto? Okay, um, first about Neil Adams, uh, he's a fantastic artist, he's a fantastic advocate, but God, he cannot write to save his life. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that the artists that influenced me are the ones that are both the writers and artists who are good, like uh, George Perez and John Byrne. And John Byrne, for example, has an amazing ego from hell, and he's a horrible person from my heart. But, my God, his contributions for Marvel and DC Comics are so important, it's, it cannot be denied. And the same applies to George Perez, who's a really nice guy. And what he did to Wonder Woman as a character, in terms of reinvention of her DNA, and how that still translates to the present, how he, what he did to the Teen Titans also, in terms of the reinvention of the character back in the 80s that they have become the definitive version for a whole bunch of kids of what the Titans are. They forget that the Titans were existed before George Perez came around, but he creates such iconic characters that nobody cares about the other characters. They just care about Starfire, Raven, Cyborg, you know, the characters that he, Mark Wolfman, created. Uh, the, the thing that, imp- and I'll tell you, George Perez is... He is also one of my favorite artists. The thing that impresses me the most about him, um, you know, say what you want. Uh, usually, as guys get older, their style changes a little bit. Maybe things drop off a little. I mean, I certainly, I mean, I look at uh, a great like Carmine, Carmine Infantino, right? And particularly as he got older, his style changed and not in such a way that I was particularly pleased with. George Perez is like the only guy, well, all right, excuse me, Wally Wood stuff looked the same to me all along. But George Perez, uh, in terms of being a contemporary artist, his stuff looked, if anything, it got better and more detailed the older he got. And uh, I remember I had the, uh, I had the privilege of talking to him uh, once a few years ago. And it, what he said was, is that he always wanted the editor or whomever was looking at his stuff to say, George Perez, you are insane. You know, that was a huge compliment to him. And in the fact that he was the one who drew such uh, watershed books as um, a crisis on infinite earths or the justice league yep. Avengers crossover is just a testament to this guy's incredible skill as an artist. Infinity War. Don't forget Infinity War. 
Oh, hey, well, by all means, let's not forget the Infinity War. I mean, but the point is, you could keep going talking about George Perez and, and his stuff. I'm going to mention another one. Don Heck. Uh, Don Heck uh, used to draw, in fact, he drew a bunch of Marvel characters. I became familiar with his work on some early issues of the Avengers. Again, a guy who had a really great professional style. In fact, a lot of these guys who were doing comic books at the time, you know, of course, they had gone to art school. They had been professionally trained. I gathered that the expectation was that they were going to be doing cigarette ads or something like that. But, you know, a, a lot of the time in comics, you see people, artists, you know, when they have to draw somebody in a suit, it looks all awkward or something. Don Hex people, this man could draw formal wear he could draw business suits he could draw cocktail dresses i mean everybody looked really great and when he drew tony stark going out it was like this guy was dressed to the nines but it was really beautiful stuff and heck really knew how to tell a story and he really really knew how to draw exceptionally beautiful women i i his scarlet witch uh you know i can still see the scarlet witch drawn by don heck in, in, in my mind. So anyway, David, you, you threw a whole bunch of names out and you can keep talking about that if you want, or <laughs> I'm sure you got more people <laughs> that you can talk about, <laughs> but there were some giants that you mentioned, uh, in, in that last round. So what do you got? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if you've reached your saturation level yet. Uh, <laughs> Nowhere there were, close. <laughs> there were a, a number of, uh, kind of clusters of artists who, uh, really did, beautiful profound work we haven't talked about the people who did comic strips but god knows alex raymond and milton kniff and uh Hal foster uh those guys worked for for decades uh doing just incredible work their craftsmanship was uh was astonishing and they invented whole worlds out there you know the whole flash gordon buck rogers world didn't exist until comics invented it and uh, then that later made its way to movies. Things like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and, and all the other science fiction movies really got their start with, uh, with Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Uh, so those guys began a lot. Uh, you, you forget about it now, but uh, Alex Raymond, I don't know if that name means a whole lot to you youngsters. Yes, it does. Surely, yes. Alex. Alex Raymond was was uh, working in a bullpen for King Features. He had wanted to become a stockbroker, and he lost his job in the uh, in the big uh, crash of the, for the Great Depression. And so, desperate for work, he went to work uh, drawing panel borders for King Features. And one day, the uh, big boss from King Features came down the hall and said, "We're getting our lunch eaten by our competitors." They got three great strips. They got Tarzan, they've got uh, uh, they've got Dick Tracy, uh, and they've got uh, the third one. The they, had, they said what we need to do is come up with with we have to invent strips to compete with uh, with those guys. Oh, and Jungle Jim. Oh, um, uh, Tarzan. I'm sorry, Tarzan, Dick Tracy, and oh, Buck Rogers for the three. And that we need to invent competitors. To those three strips so i'm putting out a competition so all you wage slave artists working in the back room here if you can invent a strip that'll compete with one of those three strips 
then you will get your own syndicated strip. So Raymond, who is eager for work, says, I'll submit a competitor for each of those strips. And so he invented Jungle Jim to compete with Tarzan, he invented Flash Gordon to compete with Buck Rogers, and he invented Secret Agent X-9, which later became Rip Kirby, to compete with uh, Dick Tracy. And they came back to him and said, you won all three. So <laughs> now you've got three syndicated strips so to, to draw simultaneously. And, uh, you know, he went nuts. He went looking for ghost artists to help him out. But uh, that just shows the kind of opportunity that was out there for talented artists. If you, you, know, you had no background or no connections, uh, if your syndicate was out there uh, desperate for new ideas, you could, you could go in and just mint money. Uh, by doing popular strips, and uh, he was he was marvelous inventing those creative worlds, the whole world of Jungle Jim, dear God, the whole world of uh, of Flash Gordon, uh, those were uh, creations, simultaneous creations from one incredible talent. Mm, yeah, well, and I, I also think it's worthy of note that uh, to do syndicated comic strips. You could you could make some money doing that. <laughs> that was I mean yeah. I, I it's funny. I was thinking about the comic books, but I appreciate your mentioning these strips and you know the 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 giants that you mentioned, uh, particularly Hal Foster. I, I grew up reading Prince Valiant every Sunday, and you know I know Foster wasn't at that point drawing it, but you know they had his name on the strip, and you can go back and you know find uh, the the older work, but. It, it looked very much like that, but a beautiful style, you know, for that medieval kind of look, you know, and mm -hmm. it just, again, beautiful stuff. No, that's a, that's a good call. Uh, Julian? So I guess another one that's pretty impactful for me is uh, Jean Girard, better known as Mobius, which is the French uh sure you stole that one comic from me. artist <laughs> <What's> uh, <laughs> he's pretty impactful because like especially i probably you know I'll, i'm not that old but going about the way people talk about seeing his work in the 70s kind of like shifted a lot of people's consciousness seeing um metal herlant which was then used as the basis for heavy metal the sci-fi uh sometimes erotica comic art magazine that you know still kind of comes out to this day depending on who's publishing it and who owns it um yeah his work is it, it's, it's so different the way he draws human figures the way he draws complete landscapes and worlds uh, nothing like anybody else does it he he he's influenced so much science fiction in terms of movies televisions and books that most people don't even know uh, really, Scott basically copied his entire drawing style because it's basically how he learned how to draw. Was just looking at Gene Gerard. So if you've ever looked at any Blade Runner or any any of really Scott's storyboards, you're just seeing somebody ape Mobius the entire time. And it's, it's actually when you see the astronaut Susan Alien, you can actually tell the influence of of him because they do look like something that he will have designed. Remember? Yeah, because he also worked on that one too. So it's like. Yeah, he's just so impactful. Yeah, I think he wait he he passed away not too long ago, like in the yeah. last mm -hmm. like like five or six years or so, and he was still working to that to that point. It's just when you see his work, or even when you see the little bit of Marvel comics work he did, like his take on the Silver Surfer, or like these random covers of like Spider Man or Iron Man, it's just like you're like, what is that? That looks like nothing else that 
anyone here does. And he he left a care impression. If I had a Mount Rushmore, he's he's clearly on that Mount Rushmore of comic artists, cartoonists. No, I, I would absolutely have to agree with that. Um, and it's uh, it's a shame that you mentioned that one before Roberto could. <laughs> but, hey, Roberto. <laughs> well, I have two. I was going to say, I'm sure you have a backup. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have two. Uh, Mr. DC Comics, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, mm-hmm. who I consider to be a god of animation. Mm-hmm. He makes, he's the kind of artist that you hate if you're an artist because he makes it look easy and you and even mobius basically commented on his artwork saying wait a minute you're throwing all that stuff without reference yeah from memory yeah all the anatomy and everything yeah and it's amazing how he makes the panels flow beautifully and he makes it look easy and another artist that i admire the heck out and i i consider to me incredibly underappreciated is alan davis Alan Davis basically is a Silver Age artist talking the present. And he's an older artist now, and he still cranks up work like, 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 like clockwork. And I admire the professionalism of his work, the line work he has, how beautiful. If you see, you can tell he started basically drawing in black and white before he basically moved to color in one of those... Uh, big collections in uh, in the 70s and 80s because his line work and his uh, tonal work is incredible. And he, for me, is one of the guys that I collect everything he, he pushes, he, he publishes, because I really uh, admire his work. And the same for Solis Garcia Lopez. They're both amazing. Well, I appreciate that. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned Jose Luis Garcia Lopez uh, also in particular, because one of the things that I have said about Superman the movie is that Christopher Reeve looked like a, a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez drawing of Superman. Yes. Like he stepped right out of the comic book, down to the belt buckle. You know, he looked, I mean, it was, it was beautiful, down to the boots. And how they didn't have heels and stuff. I was like, oh, man. I mean, it was an absolute thing of beauty. Okay. Well, you are listening to Fantastic Forum on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. We are your community radio station. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. I'm joined today by Roberto Ortiz, Julian Lytle, and David Apatoff. We are talking about our favorite artists and artists who have been influential in the field of both comic book art and syndicated comic strips. And I want to mention, since everybody else has been mentioning a couple of people, I'm like, well, shoot, I'm going to mention a couple of people. And uh, even though uh, I talked about uh, one of these gentlemen uh, on a um, African-American history show that I did back in February, I'm going to drop this name again. It's Matt Baker. And uh, mm-hmm. Matt Baker is a guy who, um, it, it, well, to have been an African-American artist, uh, particularly at the time that uh, he came up, because uh, he was born in the early 20s and uh, worked in the uh, 30s and 40s. Um, he's the creator of Phantom Lady, uh, and he did a lot of romance comics, but a beautiful, beautiful style. And uh, unfortunately, he died 
in the late 1950s, and I believe that had he lived, he probably would have had a, a very lengthy career with Marvel Comics. I think he's somebody who Stan Lee would have said, oh man, we're, we're going to get you in here. But a couple other names I want to drop, uh, since I'm talking about African-American artists, uh, Billy Graham and Keith Pollard. Now, Billy Graham, um, I first became aware of his work when he was uh, working on the Black Panthers solo series in Jungle Action in the mid-70s. Billy Graham also did quite a bit of stuff uh, on Luke Cage, Hero for Hire. And, uh, you know, to be a African-American artist who was also working on an African-American, well, African characters or African-American characters, I, I certainly think is noteworthy. I'm going to throw in one more. We've got the triumvirate here, uh, Keith Pollard. Uh, who uh, and Keith Pollard has uh, more Bronze Age artist, but he has worked on virtually every Marvel character. He was doing the because uh, you know Spider-Man had Marvel Team Up, and they also had Marvel Two in One, which was of all characters the Thing from the Fantastic Four teaming up with another uh, superhero. And Keith Pollard did a whole bunch of Marvel Two in One and uh, got to draw a whole bunch of different Marvel characters. Keith Pollard uh, was all of that. So that's, that, that's where I am on this. David, it's your turn. Well, I'd like, like to drop a footnote on your Matt Baker comment because I agree with you. I think he was terrific, and I think that he is a great example of how being a comic artist left you with more individual personality and taste in your drawings than corporate works of art, like movies, for example, which require you know thousands of, uh, of people participating and second-guessing and filtering. Matt Baker could squeeze more, how to put this, uh, feminine pulchritude into <laughs> an individual panel, into an individual dra drawing. And it's not just the way that people were posed, it's the way that clothing hung on people mm. or the way they moved uh he you, you knew darn well what he was interested in and because he was an individual working just with that piece of paper in front of him he could put that personality and that force into his uh into his work and that is one of the privileges that you get from being a, a solitary artist that mm. you don't get even if you're the director of a big uh, big production you may have an army you may have 10 battalions of it workers doing cgi you may have 43 matte painters and all that but you don't have that personal freedom that comes out in an individual style the way that matt baker was able to just infuse into uh, everything that he drew so i think i think he's a delight to to watch I, every single panel has got a, a bit of that uh, world view in it so i'm, I'm with you on that Thank you for that validation. You know, I mean, I, I, I loved his work, and particularly, you know, what you talk about the way that clothes hang on the human figure. I mean, this, this guy really knew what he was doing and uh, was able to convey a certain feeling uh, along with that. So, um, okay, well, um, mm -hmm. I, I, we, we will move on then to Julian Lytle. Hmm, I guess um, for my Hold last on, one... 
Well, yeah, I I, we, we may have time to make another round here. <laughs> so, no. Uh, but we're, no, we're almost from, out of time, though. For yeah. my last one, I'll pick something international. Oh, I'll say oh. uh, 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 Akira Toriyama. He's the creator of uh, Dragon Ball. It's a manga, a manga ka, a manga artist. I kind of consider it all comics. But uh, for those who don't know, Dragon Ball is probably one of the most impactful properties in the world the last 30 years. And his cartooning is unparalleled how he's able to do comedy action drama and he did it so for like almost 10 years on one story and before that he did a little comedy comic called dr slump that was completely silly and I, his his panel movement the way he's able to direct your eye within the panel throughout the page his page layouts his distinction of character all these things make him completely iconic and people need to check it out and more just being a joke of Dragon Ball is just yelling. People need to really look at the cartooning of the manga versus even the adaptations of like the cartoons and anime and such. He's one of the best artists of like the last 30 years. He inspired so many other things that we now take for granted and tropes and use of action that a lot of people just don't know. They just take it for granted at this point. Um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned okay. him because, you know, particularly including because uh, manga, I mean, that's that's totally legit. And, you know, there's so much that has sprung out of that that has leaped into the popular culture and the influence. Heck, that some of the anime that's had, you know, where you start with manga and that spreads out to anime. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that one. Uh, Roberto. I have Ryan, uh, Brian still mispronouncing his name i met him one i met i met him once he's a wonderful person an amazing artist uh for old timers of course wallywood uh because of his influence in terms of the illustration style in the industry and uh hayao mikasaki of course because what people forget before he became found the studio gilby and all that is that he used to do manga and uh now he can the value of the wind the manga which i own is amazing and he, ha he has to be one of the most incredible world builders I have ever seen in my life in terms of storytelling. He really is in amazing in terms of his storytelling, his design style, everything. He's like the whole package of an artist. And he's a beast in terms of how he can do so much work so quickly. So those are my three ones. Okay. All right. Well, you're sticking three in. Uh, I, I work back around to me. Um, and this is likely going to be our last round. Uh, we're almost out of time for this episode, but I think we can get everybody in uh, if we uh, move with some alacrity here. Um, I, I, there's so many names that I want to mention. And, you know, so many, I mean, in some cases, we've only talked about these people in passing. But uh, the guy that I want to single out is Kurt Swan. Because uh, yes. Kurt Swan was drawing Superman when I first started reading comics and uh, you want to talk about a clean commercial style. I mean, Oh my goodness, but this guy, uh, and he, he, he had also been drawing the character uh, from earlier. I think, uh, you know, early sixties, I'm pretty sure because he had been drawing some Legion of superheroes and adventure comics. Uh, but and I loved his work there too, but it was particularly the Superman stuff because I mean, Superman looked like a man of steel and everything. 
the world was perfect for this character. The sky was blue. The sun was yellow. I mean, when he went into space, he could do that. I mean, this and this guy could draw pretty much anything. Clothes looked great. I mean, everything was everything was great with Kurt Swan. So, um, you know, Kurt Swan is is the guy that I want to mention. So, um, uh, David. Okay, two real fast. One, I think uh, the the cartoonist, the comic artist with the most poetic soul of the last uh, 50 years is Jeffrey Catherine Jones, uh, who did the Idol strip and I'm Age and worked Wonder Woman and other other books. But uh, uh, in terms of co content, in terms of poetic content, writing, and in terms of form, kind of a lilting poetic line, he, he later she, was just incredible. And then mm. the second artist I would uh, commend is, I think, perhaps the greatest genius uh, uh, of the last 50 years, which was uh, Mort Drucker, who worked for mm. Mad Magazine, and who could, who could draw with the realistic best of them. He understood technical drawing, he had all the skills, all the design, all the composition, but he went above and beyond that to draw the, his caricatures and his comedy drawing. And uh, he just has an unrivaled uh, history of, of just beautiful work. Hmm. Thank you. All right, uh, Julian, you got uh, you got one more you can stick in here. Yeah, I'm going to pick Lynn Johnston. She did a comic strip called for, for better oh, or worse. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was a comic strip that, as a kid, it was always different to me because it's the only one that felt like a like a dramedy. It felt like I was reading something like Thirty Something, mm -hmm. or or like Life Goes On, but it was a comic strip and I wasn't used to something to have comedy, subtlety, dramatic moments with just regular people. There was no talking animals. There was no pratfalls. It was just like a good story that I could read, you know, every day or every Sunday with nice change in art and able to emote and show different feelings, different people and everybody felt real. So that's, that's my last pick. Yeah, well, I appreciate that because you make me ashamed that we haven't mentioned some female artists in this talk. <laughs> and Lynn Johnson is the first one. I love that one myself. All right, uh, Roberto, uh, you're the anchor leg here. Okay, Colleen Duran, that's a female. Uh, P. K. P. Craig Russell and Sergio Aragones. Those are my last two. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that you know that that Sergio Argonis, that that's a good one, man. And I wish we had more time to get into talking about this. In fact, I guess what we're going to need to do, we're going to need to do a whole other show where we continue talking about the artist because you know there there is so much of the rich history of comic books, and it was all built on the skill of these men and women who sat at their drafting tables by themselves cranking this stuff out, you know. So mm -hmm. I'd like to thank you and our panelists for being on this show. Of course, Fantastic Forum is also a television show. If you happen to be in the Arlington, Virginia area, you can catch us tonight at 8 p.m. and tomorrow night at 8 p.m. We're on Saturdays and Sundays. Comcast, Channel 69, Verizon Fios, Channel 38. And, of course, Fantastic Forum, the radio show, re-airs each and every Thursday at 3 p.m. And tell your friends, if they're not in the listening area, they can tune in and stream the show via the website at WERA.FM. And you can check out the website. We're on the web at fantasticforum.tv. 
and we've got segments of the television show broken out. We've got episodes of the radio show. Uh, we've got everything that you always wanted and needed that you didn't know that you wanted and you needed. And Fantastic Forum is also available as a podcast if you visit thegreatgeekrefuge.com, which I certainly hope you make the opportunity to do. And please come back and spend some time with us next week. Same bat time, same bat station.